Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Where does hunger come from? Did you decide that you wanted to feel hungry or is that just a sensation, a motivational drive that appears from parts of your brain that you have little control over. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, hello, my friends. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I bring you a conversation with Stefan Guyanet. He has a, B, uh, a BS in uh, a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry from the University of Virginia, a PhD in Neuroscience from the University of Washington, has spent a total of 12 years in the neuroscience research world. His most recent book, which is what we discussed today, The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting the instincts that make us overeat has been hailed far and wide as a essential reading for understanding the neurobiological and physiological underpinnings of obesity. Uh, Stefan is also the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, which publishes the most informative, consistent and unbiased popular health and nutrition book reviews available. And today, man, do we have a conversation for you today. You are going to, uh, you are really going to love the nuance in this conversation. So we started talking about quantifying obesity over the last several thousand years and how this has really changed, you know, the body type, the morphology of people, let's say in modern affluent societies like the US and Canada and Western civilization, uh, and compared that to, uh, you know, a typical human, uh, say a thousand, 10,000 years ago, and even the, at the turn of the century. So what were some of the changes, let's say, uh, in the 1900s, 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, that is driving the change in uh, obesity. We talk about BMI, classifications over the years, how those have changed. We talk about the genetic component of obesity, not discussed enough, if you ask me, but we talk about uh, this idea that our genes really have not changed, but our propensity for obesity has. Um, so we talk about why it's more likely today to become more obese in what you might 
call a fattening uh, or a fat promoting um, environment. We talk about the lipostat. Uh, we talk about areas in the brain, the ventral medial hypothalamus, the brainstem, the lateral hypothalamus. Uh, and we talk about the role that behavior and behavioral cues have in obesity. We also talk about leptin uh, and other hormones that are involved in the lipostat. And then we talk about bliss points uh, of food, sort of the hedonic aspect of food and the brain's response to hyper palatable foods and what the reward circuits, like what happens in our brain as we continue to eat more and more uh, palatable food. Uh, we have, this is, this is such a fantastic conversation for anybody who is trying to either lose that last five to 10 pounds or if you have, you yourself may be obese and maybe you carry a lot of shame and blame around that. There's a lot of uh, physiological explanation uh, in terms of why this may be the case. And we also talk about solutions for, you know, whether you're trying to lose that last five to 15 or you're trying to lose, you know, that last, say, 150 to 200, let's say, pounds. So whether you are morbidly or markedly obese or, you know, trying to just lose those last uh, couple of pounds that you seem to gain and lose over the course of your lifetime. There are solutions in here for you. Lots of nuance, lots of uh, details in here. Tuck in. This is going to be a great one. If you like this discussion, I would love it if you could rate and review the podcast. So a five-star review would be awesome, but anything less, I'm happy to read it and happy to take your feedback as to why. And if you feel so compelled to read or to write a review, this helps other people find the show and it just helps to amalgamate the Betty army that we are, that we are putting together slowly person by person around the world. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Stefan Guinet. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature, 
We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family. And over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Stefan, <laughs> welcome to The Better Show. I am so excited to welcome you. Great to be here, Stephanie. Um, we were talking a lot in the uh, in the pre-show, in the pre-chat before we got started, and I think we're going to have a really uh, robust and juicy conversation around some of the underpinnings of obesity. I think that this is something that is very much uh, misunderstood. Uh, I think that there's, uh, and we're going to get into the neurobiology of obesity and the genetics of it today as well. But I think that there's a lot of misinformation, we'll say disinformation, uh, around sort of the origins of it. I think that even when we look in the public health forum, uh, it's very easy to sort of look at, you know, whoever has a large amount of following or who has cultural authority um, and sort of follow what they're saying. And uh, as you and I were kind of talking about in the pre-show or pre-chat, uh, not necessarily always correlated with uh you know, what is represented in the literature. And so just by way of background, uh, before we kind of get started today, I thought it would be really useful. Um, you know, I'm very familiar with your work and have been for, for a long time, but if for anybody that's not familiar with your work, how did you come to study, uh, let's say obesity and the neurological underpinnings, uh, of sort of brain derived, uh, sort of the hallmarks of, of obesity. And then we can, we can move into a little bit of, um, what some of the work that you're doing now. Yeah, sure. So, um, I've always been interested in health and fitness and growing up, I had friends who were in sports with me and, you know, it was really obvious that some of them had, uh, much higher, um, let's say they had more struggles with their weight relative to me. I mean, we were all going out exercising tons every day. And yet some of them just had a really hard time controlling their weight, whereas I did not. Um, and I've always been interested in science, um, particularly neuroscience. The brain, more than any other organ, is what makes us who we are as humans. And it's one of the great last frontiers of, of science. And I think that um, I always wanted to be a neuroscientist, at least as soon as I really like understood what science was, neuroscience was what really attracted me. Um, and 
in college, I got a degree in biochem with the idea that that would be a foundation for further studies in neuroscience. And so I went to graduate school for neuroscience at the University of Washington. And at the time I was studying neurodegenerative disease, um, I hadn't really settled on obesity as my primary topic of interest. And I was working on a neurodegenerative disease called SCA7, which is quite rare. It's related to some other conditions like Huntington's disease that are not as rare, but it's still, you know, it's a rare condition. And I eventually just felt that it was a limitation of what I was doing, that it wasn't going to affect that many people, you know, like even if we managed to find a cure, like the number of people who would be cured was relatively small. And so I decided I wanted to do something more impactful. And around that time, you know, I was just learning more about neuroscience and how all, like how many things the brain regulates. I mean, the brain's really got its, uh, it's, it has effects on every part of our body, right? And it's regulating a bunch of different things. And I started learning more about how it regulates appetite and how it regulates body fatness. And I learned that there is a system in the brain that actually actively regulates your body fatness, which was not something that I knew before. And I think it's not something that most people know even today. And the evidence for this goes back like 160 years. So there's actually quite a bit of evidence for it. We even have, you know, down to the cellular and molecular level, we know a lot about how the system works. And so um, I thought that was really fascinating. Like, okay, well, suddenly obesity is, is kind of a biological regulatory problem. You know, maybe it's not just about this, this like passive outcome of our behaviors. It's a biological regulatory problem. Not to say that it's not related to behavior. Um, and so I then did a, I decided to take a little career um, trajectory change. And so I did a postdoc at the University of Washington in the neuroscience of obesity with Mike Schwartz, who is uh, a leader in that field. And then, you know, I started learning more about that from the kind of, you know, scientific insider perspective. And the information was just so fascinating and so important that I felt compelled to start sharing it with people. And so I started writing about it a lot on uh, my blog at the time was called the whole health source. And um, it started getting traction with people. I think, you know, there's just all this information that was coming from the scientific community that was not trickling down to the public. And it was really important, really interesting stuff. And so, um, you know, I wrote the blog for a while and tried to get some of that scientific information to the public in an understandable way. And eventually I thought the best way for me to do that would be to package it into a book, which is the hungry brain. And, um, yeah. And so that kind of got me to, um, the book. And since then I'm no longer in academia, but I'm continuing with kind of uh, science communication as well as uh, kind of work around information quality and misinformation. 
So I love that. And I want to, I want to maybe just double click on some of the findings that you found were, uh, we'll say shocking, or maybe they were aha moments for you, um, in your, uh, in your lab with, uh, with Mike Schwartz, because I think that a lot of people, when we think about obesity, and I actually put a little question box in my Instagram leading up to our conversation, like, what are some questions that you have about obesity? And a lot of the comments were, how can we teach these people to stop eating? How can we, how can we show them that, you know, basically like, how can we show them the way in terms of lifestyle and in the sort of, uh, we'll say vein of transparency and honesty, I used to also hold those beliefs. I used to also think that there was a personality type of, like there was a laziness factor or something like that, that would cause this, um, you know, continuous overeating or this continual seeking of like hyper palatable foods. And there was just, if you just had the willpower, you know, if you just could muster through the, you know, the resistance, then you could, you too could find the land of, you know, paradise or whatever it is. And I've since changed uh, my mind on that after working with so many, now I tend to work more with, with women and we're going to have a hopefully a nuanced conversation around some of the sexual dimorphisms that we see between men and women in the neurobiology uh, specifically. Um, but what are, what were some of the things that you discovered, or maybe, you know, you went in with a certain preconceived notion, if you had any around obesity and what were some of your revelations uh, in that lab at, at U of Washington? So I don't know, that I had too many preconceived notions, but, um, and, and also I want to point out that, you know, I was a very small piece of a big field. So when I talk about, um, this stuff, uh, this information that I was learning, most of it was not coming specifically from the experiments that I was doing. It's more kind of what the broader field was doing. And so, you know, I was contributing my little piece, but, um, the most of what I'll be talking about was not work that I personally did just, just to clarify that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, so let me just start here. I think it is clear that behavior is related to weight. So behaviors are related to weight. We know that calorie intake, for example, is strongly related to weight and that, you know, how much we eat, what we eat, those are behaviors. However, I think what people don't appreciate is the degree to which those things are regulated by brain systems that are not fully under our control. And so if you think about like, just to give you a couple of simple examples, where does hunger come from? Did you decide that you wanted to feel hungry or is that just a sensation, a motivational drive that appears from parts of your brain that you have little control over. What about a craving? Like if you see a cookie on the counter or you smell, you know, brownies in the oven, did you choose to experience that craving and have a strong motivational drive to eat those brownies? No, that's just something that arose from your brain. Your brain received that, that sensory cue, the smell or the sight of it. And that triggered something in your brain. And now you're, you have this strong drive to go eat that thing. So there's, and you know, the brain just regulates a ton of different things. It regulates your heart rate. It regulates your digestion, your blood pressure. Like there's all of these things happening in the brain, including a lot of the underpinnings of your cognitive processes that we're just not aware of and not in control of. We, we have this perception 
that we are fully in control of ourselves. But in fact, we're kind of always being buffeted around all day by all the stuff that's arising from all these non-conscious brain regions, right? I think if you really think about it, it becomes quite obvious. And so this is this um, leads to what I think is a pretty amazing conclusion. And that is that we are often in, our brain is often in conflict with itself in terms of our eating behavior and our weight. And so you have a part of your brain, like that conscious, thoughtful uh, part that says, I don't want to eat too many calories. I want to eat the right type of food to keep myself lean and healthy, right? And then you have other parts of your brain, these kind of non-conscious or less conscious parts of your brain that are saying, no, I want to eat that brownie and I want to eat this many calories. I want to eat more calories than this, than the conscious part is saying they want to eat. And so there's this conflict that's set up. And these, this, this internal conflict, these non-conscious parts of the brain, they're not designed to be overridden. That's the thing. They are, they don't, they're not designed to be easily overridden by the conscious parts of your brain because these are survival circuits. These are circuits that evolved in an ancient setting where it was life or death scenarios. And so like, it doesn't want all of your stupid conscious ideas to be messing with the regulatory system, you know, even though those regulatory systems are in some cases totally out of date in the context of our normal, our, our, you know, prevalent food environment today's food environment, like they're misfiring basically. Um, but they were designed for a reason and they're very powerful. And so I think those are a couple of things to really be aware of that. I think kind of really, you can just, it doesn't require scientific research. You can just think it through and come to these conclusions, but you know, one, we have all these non-conscious systems in our brain that influence our behavior. And two, we, um, we have this kind of internal conflict. And I think when, when people think about it, they realize this, like, especially people who have dieted a lot, they know that feeling of internal conflict. They know that feeling of having to fight themselves, having to fight their own urges of hunger and cravings, et cetera. And so those are a couple of things. Another thing that I think is really important for people to understand is the fact that there is actually, there are regulatory systems regulating your body fatness. There are regulatory systems regulating your appetite, um, regulating what and how much you crave. And all that stuff is strongly genetically influenced. So, I mean, I think, again, I don't think we even need a lot of science to demonstrate this, but science certainly supports it, that some people are just much more prone to obesity than others just by the way their DNA blueprint is operating. Some people can eat practically whatever they want. They don't have to worry about it and they are never going to develop obesity. Other people are really concerned about weight gain and are trying to eat a healthy diet and yet they're gaining anyway. And so there are different propensities to, to weight gain that people experience. And that doesn't mean that your choices don't matter. It doesn't mean that your behavior doesn't matter, but it does mean that all of those things are 
influenced, they're being pushed in a certain direction by your genetic propensity. And in fact, if we look at twin, twin studies, we see that, um, so these, these are studies that one of the ways that researchers try to tease apart how much of something is genetic versus environmental, what you see is that these twin studies suggest that 70% of differences in body fatness between individuals is determined by genetics. 70, 70. 70, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I want to acknowledge there's some debate around that. Some people argue it's lower, but like pretty much the lowest it could possibly be is like 40%. So any way you slice it, it's big. Like genetics are a major determinant. And we see, you know, it runs in families, even kids who are adopted. So they're put into a completely different family structure, completely different environment of diet and lifestyle and whatever. They tend to have body fatness that is more like their parents than their genetic parents, excuse me, than like their adoptive parents. So genetics is, is really powerful. So I think that's another thing for people to understand. And this relates back to the point that you made um, that about like, you know, if we could just give them the right information, maybe this problem would be fixed. But realistically, unfortunately, that's not as effective as we would like it to be. Because first of all, there's these genetic propensities in certain people. And second of all, it's a regulatory system and it doesn't want you to lose weight. So this is, this is part of understanding that there is a regulatory system regulating your body fatness is that once a person develops obesity, their brain is regulating to the obese state and it will resist weight loss. And this is, this is a really cruel or unfair feature of how this regulatory system works is that a, um, a person with obesity who loses weight, their brain reacts with a starvation response just the same way that a lean person's brain would react if they were to lose weight. So what you see is an increase in eating drive, a decrease in metabolic rate, and a bunch of other things that programs that the brain activates to get that fat back. And once they regain the fat, then the program turns off. It's just like your thermostat turning on when the temperature goes down and then it turns back off when the temperature gets back to the, to the set point on the thermostat, right? That's how the system operates. And so you see this in um, studies of weight loss in people with obesity is you give them a weight loss intervention and it's the same for anything. It could be low fat, could be low carb, could be, you know, plant-based diet, could be anything. They lose weight, you get maximum weight loss around six months, and then they typically regain most of that weight over the next year or two. And that is in large part because we have this regulatory system. If we didn't have a regulatory system, you could just lose weight and then just cruise at that lower weight. There wouldn't be anything pulling you back up to your former weight. But that is what we observe is that you get pulled back up. So um, those are a few things off the top of my head that I think are really important to understand. I guess the last thing I will say, um, this is relevant to this debate of what exactly causes obesity and what's 
you know, what is the regulatory system that really matters? If you look again at the genetics of obesity and you say not just how much of it is genetic, but what are the genes that are causing some people to be fatter than others? There's tons and tons of genes that are contributing usually a very small amount each, but most of them are related to the brain. So most of them are related to how your brain was constructed during development and how it operates now. The neurotransmitters, uh, how your synapses form, what, you know, all, all of this stuff related to how your brain functions seems to be the primary thing in the genetics that matters, that makes some people fatter than others. And so I think this is a key point to understand. I think most people don't know that obesity and body fatness really revolve around the brain and brain activity more than any other organ. Yeah. So I, I think that that's definitely worth underlining when we think about behavior. Behavior is always downstream from a brain-based activity. So we're going to get into some of the thermoregulatory uh, aspects of that today. And I think, you know, when we talk about the genetics of obesity, if you just think about this from a natural selection point of view or from an evolutionary point of view, like it wasn't always that there was Uber Eats and McDonald's and Starbucks at every corner. There were long periods of time where you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of years where you had nomadic tribes and you didn't have a guarantee of when your next hunt or your next kill or, you know, you could harvest whatever berries or whatever uh, from the land that you were staying on. So it made sense that natural selection would select for genes or a propensity towards holding on to adipose tissue um, as an advantage. And, you know, I can say from, you know, my babies when, you know, we want fat babies, you know, we want, and we even celebrate them, right? Like when my kids were little, man, those little rolls on their legs, like I would chew on them. Like they were so delicious, right? And they were, and we don't want under, we don't want small little babies. We want like chubby babies again, from that, like looking from that evolutionary lens that would confer, you know, a likelihood of survival. If you have a baby that has, you know, a, a little bit more padding on, on him or her, let's say. Yeah. I mean, um, that's, that's an excellent intuition. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to make one little point here uh, that you might find interesting. So some of the work that I do, actually most of the work I do is in global health, um, global health. And um, there's a very strong correlation between um, body weight, like body fatness basically, and, and death risk in low income countries. So being underweight is a huge risk factor in children specifically, I should say, for, for dying. And so I think, you know, we have this intuition that you're talking about that fat babies are good. And it turns out there's a really, really good reason for that. It actually is really, really good in terms of survival. And the data show that really clearly. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, you know, kind of continue on that thought. So if we're selecting for genes that are going to have a propensity for, we'll say fatness or increasing adiposity in the individual, then you mix that with an environment, let's say that's inherently fattening. So now we have food on our, like you can pull up a phone, you know, pull up an Uber Eats or whatever, or you can go to the drive-thru and you have food within, you know, let's say 20 to 30 minutes. That's hyper palatable, which we'll talk about. Um, but it, it makes sense that now we have 
a society that is obese because it's just the, you know, you had the, you had the nature, right? You had the gene sort of propensity. And now we have the nurture, we have the environment that's, that is, that is, uh, we'll say easier for those genes to be expressed. And it makes sense why, I mean, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but I would probably guess somewhere like 50 to 60% of the, you know, at least American and Canadian population. I know the the Canadian, which is the country that I'm from, Canadians, we're about 62% is, um, the country's considered obese. Obese, and then of that sixty-two percent, I believe it's like thirty percent is considered morbidly obese, and that's classified based on BMI. So, which we, we can um, talk about. Are, are you sure that's not overweight? Because I know in the U.S., the obesity stat for adults is forty-three percent, is the latest. And I it think might be, it might be overweight. Lower. Yeah, I okay. can fact check myself okay. on that. Yeah, yeah, I think that would make sense for the figure for overweight, or I should say, overweight and obese. Overweight and obese. Okay, yeah. so let's let's talk a little bit about how that has changed over time. So I would assume that if we went back, uh, you know, call it 10,000, 100,000, 300,000, you're not going to, you know, years ago, you're not going to find l- large percentages like 40, 50% of the population considered overweight. Um, so what is it is it just the environment that has changed? Like, what do you think has happened to the obesity rates? Uh, let's say, even if we look at the turn of the century, let's not even f- like forget about the tens of thousands of years ago. Let's even just look at like, you know, the 1900s, let's say. Um, what do you think has changed in terms of yeah. the, the uh, what what is sort of the progression, let's say, of obesity rates from our early ancestors, maybe the turn of the century and up to current day? So I think we should go all the way back like thousands of years. I think I think we should start there because I think it's really important for the evolutionary context that you're talking about. Sure. Um, to kind of, you know, put this into a big frame. So um, we don't know exactly how fat people were 10,000 years ago because that's something that's very hard to tell from from the archaeological record. But we do have people in the historical record and even still uh, cultures still existing today that are living in a way that is broadly similar to how our distant ancestors lived. So hunter-gatherer lifestyle, which our ancestors would have all been living prior to about 12,000 years ago. And what you see is in hunter-gatherer cultures, obesity is basically non-existent. And the only reason I say basically is because I don't want to make a totally definitive statement that there never has been obesity, but I have literally never encountered a single instance of a hunter-gatherer with obesity in all the reading that I've done on this topic. Uh, I should say a hunter-gatherer living a completely traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Of course, when they start to move to a more industrialized lifestyle, they, yes. yeah. they do develop obesity. But mm-hmm. hunter-gatherers basically do not have obesity. And you could probably find a couple here and there who would be considered overweight, um, just barely. And usually people reach their maximum um, body weight around peak reproductive ages, which is kind of interesting. And this is true for men and women. Um, and then they actually lose weight from there would be the, the typical thing that you see. And so, um, and that's in stark contrast to what we see in affluent industrialized countries like the U S and Canada, where people 
continue to gain weight through their 60s. They get heavier and heavier. So that's not at all what we see in um, hunter-gatherer and subsistence agricultural populations. They get, they max out around like their 30s and then they, in, in like their 20s and 30s, and then they go down from there through old age. And is and that, based, I'm sorry to interrupt you, is that a decrease in, 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 we're talking about a decrease in overall weight or you can, are, yes. are we, are we slicing up like lean body mass? Cause I would assume like a 30 year old man is going to be able to carry like a caribou or whatever, or maybe not only one man, but like correct. several men can carry like a, so they're going to have a lot more musculature, let's say, do they lose that as well? Yes, correct. So, okay. um, what you see is that body fatness seems to be fairly stable over that period of time. And I'm speaking from a very limited sample here because not a lot of there's not a lot of body composition data. So I'm generalizing from just a couple of instances. So yeah, take it with a grain of salt. But from what I've seen from these couple of instances, body fatness actually remains pretty stable in these hunter-gatherer groups with age, but you see a progressive decline in lean mass. And you know, this is the same thing we see in affluent industrialized populations. Even people who take care of themselves and are physically active, they are going to lose muscle mass as they age. It's a natural part of aging. And so I think that's what we're seeing is that's just a natural process. Even though these people are still fit, they just have a gradual reduction in lean mass over time. And so you see that their body mass index goes down. Body mass index, uh, just for people who might not be familiar, is weight corrected for height, basically. Um, so they get their body mass index goes down, but it seems to be not because of changes in body fatness. They're staying pretty much lean the entire time um, and not getting leaner. They're just gradually reducing their, their muscle mass. So that's kind of the, what I think of as kind of the typical, like the ancestral human pattern of body composition changes with age. Like I think of that as the human norm in terms of what is biologically normal as opposed to statistically normal in 2022. Um, and so, yeah, so that's just kind of the context. So, so basically obesity back then essentially did not exist or was very, very rare as far as we can tell. And, um, and so it just wasn't something that we needed to adapt to via natural selection. Like there wasn't an evolutionary pressure to prevent obesity from happening because it was very rare and you, you know, life was a struggle to get food. And I don't mean that we were always like on the brink of starvation, but you know, you have to work hard. That was your job. That was your job to get food. And you had to work at it pretty hard just to survive and reproduce. And so I, I don't want to say that their lives were like, you know, a terrible struggle and miserable or anything, but it was, it was hard work just to get that food. And um, so that's the, that's the deep context. So now if we move to more recently, if we're talking about like 1900 in the United States, we have, we start getting some data on what um, obesity rates were like. There are some data from uh, civil, white Civil War veterans from 1890 and 1900. These were middle-aged white people. Um, and what we find 
I'm, I'm, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but something like one in 17 of them were classified as having obesity. It was like very low percentage compared to today. Um, if you have my book in front of you, maybe you can correct me on that. <laughs> I can probably find it. Yeah. If you give me a minute, I have it right here. <laughs> yeah. There's a graph. You could even hold the graph up. Um, but anyway, way, way lower than today, like much, much lower. Obesity was not common among middle-aged white men at that time. We can say that. Um, and if you look at the same demographic today, middle-aged white men, I think the obesity rate is, is probably around 50%. So probably like one in two uh, middle-aged white Americans today have obesity. And we see that we start getting, so those data back in 1900, it's kind of like little smatterings here and there. It's not great data. We don't have other demographics, for example. And, you know, it's not a really representative national sample. So you could, you could say like, you could argue with those, but we start getting really good data in the 1960s from the NHES surveys, which became the NHANES surveys, which are con conducted by the Centers for Disease Control. And in the first surveys that they put out, the obesity rate in the 1960s, the early 1960s, was in the um, like 12 12 to 13% range, if I'm remembering correctly. 12% yeah, and it was in your book, 12%. Okay, thank <laughs> you. Um, yeah, and what you see is there's this, so the first point I wanna make is we had already probably gotten fatter by that point because that number is already a lot higher than it was in 1900. If if we believe this 1900 data, which One in 17. broadly speaking, yeah. okay, thank you. Yeah. Which broadly speaking, I do believe um, so we already got fatter by 1960. And then what you see is we continue to slowly get fatter through the 1970s. And then sometime between the mid 70s and the mid 80s, there's this spike that happens, which we call the obesity epidemic, where the rate of increase accelerates. And so suddenly, we have this big jump that happens in the eighties and nineties. And that con is continuing to this day. Like it's kind of crazy that it hasn't really slowed down very much, maybe a little bit, but barely. And, uh, and that's what we call the obesity epidemic. And so between the mid seventies and today, we went from about 15% of people having obesity to today about 43% in the United States. And that's uh, the adult obesity rate, by the way. So it's people 20 and, and over. And if we look at actually the lifetime rate of obesity, so the likelihood that a person will develop obesity at any time in life, it's actually over 50%. So more than half of Americans at our current, in the current situation, unless something major changes, will develop obesity at some point in life. And just to clarify, I'm not talking about, you know, this is not even including overweight, which is a body mass index of 25 to 30. This is only people body mass index of over 30. So people who have obesity, 
not just a few extra pounds. And they've changed the BMI. So it used to be, well, I think it's still the same, like underweight is less than 18.5, overweight or obese is over 24.5 or 25. And then it's like mild, moderate, and then marked obesity or, you know, yeah. they, I forget the the way that they classify it, but it's, you yeah, know, you, correct. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are classes, class one, class two, class three. So okay. mm-hmm. 30 to 35, 35 to 40, 40 and higher. And yeah, I mean, they created this class system because there are, so if you look at the way that I'm going to, I'm going to get a little bit technical here, but if you look at the distribution of body mass index, like a graph of number of people versus body mass index, you see that the biggest changes have actually happened on the far end of the spectrum. So the heaviest weights have increased proportionally way more. So there, in terms of um, the higher classes of obesity, so people who really have severe obesity, those have increased by like tenfold. So uh, the the change. So that's why we're doing the class system now. Like if you go back to 1970, class three obesity was really rare, but Today, it's not that rare anymore. So when you think about the distribution, let's say the area under the curve is what you're talking about. So like the bell curve has gotten flatter, essentially. So where you had more people sort of coagulated, let's say in the middle, um, we've had that that apex of that curve kind of come down and then the tails of the curve, let's say they've come up as well. Correct. And particularly the tail on the upper end. So yeah, just to, to draw it out for folks, I'm going to try to do this backwards because I think the video will probably be backwards. If we're looking at the graph, like if everybody is close to the same BMI, you get a real tight peak like that, right? A real tight distribution. Um, but if now it spreads out and you have a bunch of people who uh, have severe obesity, then the curve starts to look more like this. You get a tail on the high end. And that's what um, that's what has happened. The curve has kind of flattened and spread out on the high end, and that causes disproportionate changes in the the high end of things. So severe obesity, or that's not the right term, but you know, more class one and obesity, two and a, yeah, yeah, has increased to a greater degree than obesity generally has increased. And it's it's interesting because when you think about the 1960s. And you said, you know, we already gotten bigger at that point, you know, at least from a, uh, you know, societal perspective, you can say, well, the advent of processed foods from the world wars, like they had to be able to feed the soldiers. So they came up with these like packaged things that could, you know, have a really long shelf life that could, you know, spend, you could spend hours, you know, days and days and days on the shelf without spoiling they realized, hey, we could actually give this to the, you know, the American people as well, right, to the, to society. So that maybe is one contributing factor. But the 80s is is interesting. Like, and then you hear, you know, the advent of TV dinners. Like, I, you know, I remember uh, even my grandmother had those little tables that you would just like click open and, you know, have your little uh, TV dinner, let's say, in front of. Um, but the 80s is interesting. Like, you know, somewhere in the... Uh, you know, the 80s, we started to see this acceleration of of obesity that you said hasn't really stopped uh, to today. And what what do you think that is? Is that just a culmination of more 
Is that just the food industry sort of coming up with more of these like hedonic, you know, bliss point foods? Is it fast? Like what, what is driving that accelerated race rate of obesity? So I want to start just with a little bit of humility on this, because I think that, you know, we don't have randomized controlled trials where we rerun U.S. history with, you know, a bunch of Wouldn't that be great? variables changed. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, and so yeah. I think, you know, we can only just do our best guess mm-hmm. of what actually happened. I think it's not obvious enough that we can have, you know, certainty about it. So yeah. what I'm going to tell you is my best guess about some factors that were important. Um, I think that if you look at U.S. history over that period from like the 70s to today, and even going back further than that, you see really profound changes in food culture and in the way that we interact with food. So uh, one of the biggest long-term trends is the shift from preparing foods at home to eating primarily commercially prepared food. So that includes both restaurant food and prepared food bought in grocery stores. So most of the food that Americans eat today is, and I don't know about Canada, but I would assume it's somewhat. Oh, similar. we do the same. Anything okay. that happens in the States, we tend to, <laughs> there's an impact or there's an imprint on the Canadian culture. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's happening globally just to some extent, but I yeah. think the U S is, you know, particularly far down this path. Um, you see this marked shift toward uh, eating prepared food. And most of the food that people eat in the US is not prepared by them from single ingredients, it's prepared by someone else, whether it's a food corporation or a restaurant. Um, And so I think that's really been a marked shift. You can see this, for example, in the incredible rise of fast food restaurants that started in the 60s and skyrocketed Uh, kind of really in parallel with the obesity epidemic. Um, And I don't want to say that that in particular was especially important, but I do think it is a marker of how our culture was changing around food at that time. And um, you see around the time of the obesity epidemic, you see this explosion in food marketing and in the number of products that are available in grocery stores, like a huge explosion. I mean, there are in the average grocery store today, there are tens of thousands of food products in the average grocery store in the U S today. It's kind of a mind blowing number, but that is that's what a it crazy is. number. And that's increased by like tenfold since prior to the obesity epidemic. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's just a lot of processed food. There's a lot of different types of food And um, that food is really being pushed hard on us by food advertising. Another thing that we've seen that kind of correlates with this is an increase in snacking behavior. So if you look at, I should have said this first, but there's an increase in calorie intake, daily calorie intake that corresponds with the obesity epidemic. Oh, in the 80s was the five meals a day plus snacks. Right. It's like fuel the metabolic fire with all those little snacks through the day. Was like that I, was that a thing that was promoted? Absolutely. It was like it was it was low. What was it? Low fat, high carb. It was like high carb, low fat. 
and then lots of snacks, like fuel, like it was like kind of fuel the metabolic fire with like constantly snacking and eating and grazing. And that's a way like that was sort of touted as a way to lose weight or to keep your, you know, figure under control with all these little snack packs. So you get like little hundred calorie snack packs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That seems like bad advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, um, I think, uh, that that's helpful context. Cause I don't remember that, but, um, I think that, um, you can see that eating occasions per day in the data increased around that time and really by a lot. So, and even from the sixties, the 1960s, it was kind of like three square meals a day. Yeah. And then to the, like to the eighties where it was like five or six meals with, you know, three meals plus three snacks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And people might've had one snack a day in the sixties or early seventies, but what we transitioned to was eating like five or six times a day. And if you look at the increase in overall calorie intake that occurred over that period that corresponds with the increase in body fatness, you can basically fully account for it by that increase in between meal eating. And I say eating, I'm including drinking because there was the soda thing. That was part of it. And so slim fast, there was also slim fast from the eighties. It's like your okay. meal is like the meal in a shake. It was I like think, a calorically dense shake. I mean, I think the main issue was sugar sweetened beverages though. Cause I think yeah. a lot more people were drinking those. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so you had people. So when I say eating occasions and snacking, I'm including consuming sodas, by the way, just to, to be clear about that. Um, And so people were adding these snacks, adding these beverages between meals, and maybe they didn't think soda was healthy, but I think at the time, you know, it was low fat, probably people didn't think it was as bad as it actually was. And, um, and so you had these increases in snacking increase in total Mm -hmm. calorie intake. And I don't want to say that's a complete explanation, but I think that's probably part of the explanation that this whole thing of culture change and advertising and snacking behavior, I think is kind of a package that contributed to the issue. And then at the same time, we stopped smoking cigarettes. And so what you see is from the, from the uh, basically 1980 to today, there has been in the United States, something like an 80% reduction in cigarette consumption. And cigarettes, you know, it's a horrible habit. It's very, very bad for your health. It's an appetite suppressant. Yeah. It does make you leaner. Yeah. Nicotine acts in the brain on these appetite circuits in the hypothalamus and it makes you leaner. And so you withdraw the nicotine. Basically, what I think happened is that we would have been fatter in the 50s, 60s, and 70s if we hadn't been constantly smoking like chimneys. And so you take that away. And I think that kind of was part of the reason why our weight kind of bounced up in the, in the eighties. And there have actually been studies done to quantify the contribution of smoking cessation to the obesity epidemic. And what they find is that, um, it does seem to have contributed. It's not like the main factor, but it does seem to have played a small role. I do want to add, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I wanted to add one more, uh, maybe oil to the fire here. And I know I'm going to get some 
slack for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I think that there's, you know, you mentioned that we move generally from cooking in the home to consuming processed foods and restaurant foods and, and, you know, prepackaged foods and things like that. And I think that, um, you know, in the eighties, we would, we also saw, you know, in the sixties, it was like, leave it to beaver. Mom's at home. She's cooking the food and all that. And then we have women entering the workforce at a much higher percentage in the eighties and nineties and beyond. Of course, now it's just like common, you know, we have women like myself and, and, and many others who, uh, who are in the workforce and have careers that they love. And I think that that also has contributed to it because the primary person who would create, you know, create these meals at home is mom, is the woman. And I have cousins now, not throwing shade. I love my cousins, but some of them are like, they take pride in the fact that they can, they can't boil water. You know, it's like, I don't do that. Uh That's, that's not me. And I, and I think that there's also been a bit of a cultural shift away from, and this is maybe getting into feminism and we don't have to go there because I know that it's a very convoluted and very, you know, uh, nuanced conversation. But I think with the advent of like, I'm, you know, being very extreme in sort of shucking all of the previous sort of roles that women played in the home uh, and in the, you know, in the nuclear family and in the dynamic, it's like there's a, there's sort of a shift, let's say, that has happened over the last 40 or 50 years where now you know, having children and cooking is almost seen like, you know, there's a little bit of this like, oh, that's just like, you know, silliness. Um, Whereas, and I think that that has also contributed a lot, like my cousins who are very proud of the fact that they can't, they can barely make pasta. Um, (laughs) So I think that there's something to be said there as well. And you don't need to comment on that, but I just, I just wanted to also throw that into the. No, I'm I'm happy to comment on it. I I agree with that. I think um, that, you know, just, you can just look at the numbers is uh, there were major changes in workforce participation among women. And obviously a traditional role for women prior to that was, was making food. And so, yeah, I think that's absolutely the cultural context in which a lot of that happened. And I'm not making any judgments at all about that. Not saying it's bad. I understand people make those decisions for valid, totally valid reasons. So it's not a judgment. It's just a statement. Uh, it's just an observation Correct. that people, you know, their role in the home changed. And that was part of the reason why we saw this, this shift away from, from home cooking. Do we see any, uh, in obesity in general, do we see any dimorphisms between, do we see any sexual dimorphisms in obesity between men and women? Are women bigger or smaller, men bigger or smaller? Like, I know if you kind of dice it up with like socioeconomic status, you're probably going to see some changes there. But specifically between men and women, is there, do we see differences in their rates of obesity? Yeah. So um, what you said about socioeconomic status is correct. You start to see bigger differences if you dice it up like that. Um, The overall rates, I don't think they're identical, but I think they're pretty similar. I'd have to go back and refresh my memory on exactly what the numbers are. But at least in the U.S., there are not large differences across uh, between men and women overall. Okay. So basically everyone has gotten bigger categorically since since yes. the 80s yeah but but again if you start to slice and dice it into like demographics socioeconomic race you can start seeing some differences so i'm just talking about the you know highest level all men versus all women mm-hmm. there are not big differences and i do also think you know 
I kind of push back somewhat against people will say that obesity is a economic thing or a socioeconomic thing that affects poor people. Everybody's gotten fatter in the United States, unless you're really looking at like the top 1%, maybe I think you would start to see big differences, but I mean, any demographic you want to look at in the U S people are fatter today than they were 50 years ago. So And you can make the argument that the bottom 1%, let's say, is arguably much more affluent and much more rich, we'll say, uh, than some of the hunter-gatherer tribes as well. So that you can also say that, you know, as a whole, the United States or Western society uh, would be considered affluent in that we don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. We typically have a thousand dollar phone, something like that within the, (laughs) probably in the same room or the next room, there's electricity, there's lighting, there's water on demand. Uh, whereas some of these, you know, uh, you know, if we compare those to maybe like the Hasda tribe or something, you know, or, or tribes that, you know, exist today that most closely replicate, you know, what our foremothers and forefathers lived like, uh, you could argue that they are much more affluent than, than, them than than those sort of ancient tribes. Yeah. I think this is a complex topic. Um, but I will say that in terms of food access, there is not, uh, in, in terms of just getting access to enough calories today, there are very few people that don't have access to enough calories relative to the historical, uh, historical norms. So I will definitely agree with that part of it. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. What about the uh, one more question? And then one, I want to get into the neurobiology. Like I want to talk about the hypothalamus and leptin and stuff. Um, the, you know, you mentioned before that the BMI, you know, the curve is sort of flattened and we see this tail end on the obese side lifting. Have we not seen that on the lower end on the underweight? Cause I know that there's also the same kind of class system, like mild, moderate, marked underweightness with BMI. Have we seen that increase or decrease with time? Yeah, honestly, I'd have to refresh my memory on that. Um, the recent historical data, I think there are fewer people that are underweight, but I, again, I'd have to verify that. What I can say is that if you compare today to those older data back in 1900, there are a lot fewer people who are underweight today than back then. So there actually were a lot of underweight, what we would today consider underweight people in in those middle-aged white civil war veterans. So, you know, this comes to another thing that I just wanted to briefly say is like those people who didn't have obesity 
they weren't necessarily healthy. I mean, the diet was pretty poor at that time. People were eating a diet that was primarily made of white flour. And we could talk about the historical reasons for that. But around that time, that was like the peak of white flour consumption. It was not fortified. People had all kinds of vitamins and mineral deficiencies. They were eating a good amount of white sugar too. And so the diet of the average person, but especially of poor people was really poor. And um, so I think these people were not necessarily that healthy. It's just that they didn't usually have obesity. Because they didn't have access to an abundance of food. But maybe the genetic predisposition was there. Like if those individuals in the 1900s lived today and were consuming all the breads and the chips and the brownies and the pastas and the pizzas and the whatever, you could make the argument that those individuals who were underweight were just doing so because they didn't have, they were underweight because they didn't have access to the abundance of food that we have access to today. I think um, I would rephrase that somewhat. So I think you could definitely make a very strong argument that they weren't lean just because of their genetics, because genetics hasn't really changed since 1900. The thing that's changed is our environment. So it's definitely environmental change. I don't think anyone could argue with that, that has driven the increase in obesity. Um, But I think it's not just about access. I don't think it's literally the case that like, you know, they could only get like, eight, you know, 2000 calories a day and not one calorie more. I'm, I'm kind of straw manning your argument. I'm just trying to make, make a point. Um, and that that was what was keeping them lean. I think it's more like they had an overall food environment and lifestyle that did not promote overconsumption, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I mean, access probably was an issue for some of them. I just don't think like, literally not being able to get enough calories was the main reason, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's move into uh, some of the brain based stuff and some the neuro, I, I want to talk about some of the, some of the drivers. I mean, we've been touching on it a little bit in our conversation um, mm-hmm. and you mentioned the thermostat and I, and I know that in your book and others have referred to the way that we regulate uh, adiposity is, you know, the, li- we call it the lipostat. Um, so, and we've talked about the brain sort of being upstream from our behavior. So maybe you can touch on what we've learned about, you know, maybe what the lipostat is, and then some of the factors that are governing how much adiposity or how much, you know, leanness or fatness, let's say an individual uh, might have. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give a little overview of the system that we call the lipostat, um, this is, So lipo means fat and stat means the same. So in the same way that a thermostat regulates temperature in your home, the lipostat regulates the amount of fat on your body. And it's primarily located in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is uh, a little part on the bottom of your brain, uh, the bottom surface of your brain. And it, it looks like a little piece of chewing gum that was stuck to the bottom of your brain. Um, And it gets lots of input from other parts of the brain and from hormones and nutrients and from sense organs and everything. 
So it's uh, inputs are complicated, but that's the really the regulatory center. And um, one of the key inputs it gets is from a hormone called leptin. So leptin is the main hormone in the body that regulates body fatness that participates in this regulatory system. And when we think about how a thermostat works, a thermostat has a thermometer that measures temperature, right? And when the temperature goes below what it's supposed to be, what you set the thermometer, the thermostat to, then the thermostat reacts by turning on the heat to bring the temperature back up. And so the thermometer in this case is this hormone leptin that is produced by fat tissue. So the more fat tissue you have, the more leptin it secretes and that's in your blood and the brain detects it. And just like your thermostat, it says, is this amount of leptin the right amount or is it too low? And if it's too low, then it kicks on this regulatory system, this, this response that I call the starvation response to regain the lost fat. So your brain perceives that you don't have enough fat on your body and it kicks in this whole suite of behavioral and physiological responses to bring back that fat that it perceives is missing. And unfortunately, the brain can perceive that you don't have enough fat, even when you already have a lot of fat on your body. So if you're, if a person with obesity is not trying to diet and then they do try to diet. So if they're not trying to diet, they're already at the weight probably that their brain quote wants them to be at the system. And then if they lose from that, their brain is going to say, we don't have enough fat anymore and kick on that starvation response, even though they may still have a lot of fat on their body. So it's not, the regulatory system doesn't really have the same concept of how much fat is enough that we might have when looking in the mirror. And this system, just to, just to state this clearly, is not totally non-conscious. This is not at all about how we think. What you want, yeah about what we want, yes. This is all happening non-consciously and influencing, pushing our behavior in one direction or another. And so like, you know, a person with obesity who loses weight, it's not like the system is holding a gun to their head and saying like, you know, eat this food or else, but it's really pushing them pretty hard to eat that food. Like if they really had to, they could, you know, not, they could just stop eating before they were full at every single meal. But that's not so easy to do, right? Day after day after day. It's like, imagine yourself being thirsty all the time. For some, maybe someone who's never dieted could imagine it this way. You're thirsty all the time and you're never drinking enough water to feel satisfied. You could do that for a day. You could probably do it for a week. Maybe you could do it for a month. Could you do it for a year? Probably not. Or right? forever. Yeah, or forever. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's the, the problem here. And so I hope I hope for people who don't have obesity that that just gives a sense of like what it's like to try to lose weight and how these regulatory systems work and how they they're not forcing us 
to, they're not like, you know, it's not like a no choice situation, but it is very difficult to resist these urges that are coming up from these non-conscious brain systems. So I think um, in terms of what tend, you asked me what tends to push weight up. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I, wa I wanted to just have a general overview of the lipostat and then what are some of the circulating factors that kind of govern it and influence it? So you touched on okay. leptin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think leptin is the biggest one. And I think one uh, one kind of area of uncertainty that I want to highlight is, you know, we can think about this regulatory system it could regulate in either direction, right? It could stop us from losing weight and it could also resist weight gain. And there's actually evidence that it does both. Just like if your thermostat has, is hooked up to heat and air conditioning, it could resist temperature changes in either direction, right? So there actually is evidence that the lipostat can resist weight gain to some degree as well. It just seems like that doesn't work very well it doesn't work nearly as well as the other direction. And um, it probably varies a lot between individuals. Like I think some people, it actually does resist weight gain pretty well. Um, and some people it does not. And obviously for the average person, it's not working very well at prevent preventing that kind of gradual weight gain that we see over the course of the lifespan in affluent industrialized countries. But we do see in short-term overfeeding studies that people actually do, after they stop overfeeding, they will pretty quickly lose most of the excess weight they gained. And they'll really be like not hungry to the point of nausea for a few days at least after they stop overeating. So there is some kind of system that seems to be pushing back, at least in some people and to some degree. It's just not really very effective at stopping that kind of long-term weight gain. So the, the reason I went on this little tangent was just to say that um, we know a lot more about the system that resists weight loss and how that works than we do about this weaker system that seems to resist weight gain as well. So the that, that makes a lot of, but that makes a lot of sense, even just from an evolutionary perspective, it would seem that the system would be selected to work better at protecting against fat loss than it would for fat gain, because fat loss is going to be more catastrophic uh, to the survival of the individual than fat gain would be. Yes, it's more catastrophic and it's also far more common. So people, it was just a lot harder to develop obesity than it was to become underweight. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it was a more common scenario and it was a greater threat to life and reproduction. And so, yeah, I agree. There was probably a much stronger selective pressure there to uh, develop stronger regulatory systems in the, in the downward direction. So anyway, I just wanted to, to put that little nuance out there that mostly what I'm talking about is the one that resists weight loss, because that's the one we understand better. So um, leptin is really the most important piece of that regulatory system in terms of the input into the system, what it's listening to that helps it decide, decide how to regulate. 
But there are other hormones. Um, there are a bunch of other hormones that may have smaller effects, like ghrelin is a hormone that's produced by the stomach that may have some effect. Um, there are a bunch of satiety hormones that may have small effects like GLP-1, GIP, amylin. Um, so it's complicated. And I think there's also, my belief is that there's a lot of context that is coming into these regulatory systems from other parts of the brain that we don't understand very well right now. Because we know that this set point, so the body fatness level around which the system is regulating, it can change. It's not fixed forever. So, you know, we gain, most of us gain fat with age, but also you can take rodents and you can feed them different types of diets. And not, not only will they gain or lose weight, they will actually change the body fatness level around which they're regulating. And on really short time scales, like you can change that in a week and make large changes depending on, I'm talking again in rodents, depending on the type of diet that you feed them and the kind of environment they're in. So I think that there are a lot of kind of, this is what we're learning about the brain in general is everything's connected to everything. And there's a lot of like systems that we thought were simple like, you know, hypothalamus and the leptin goes in and that does the regulation. Really, there's like 10 other things that are going in that we don't understand very well, but that help the organism adapt to different environmental circumstances that it might find itself in. So that's a little more speculative, but I think it will end up being important, uh, which is why I mentioned it. I think... Um this is so interesting. And I, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of different things that are going into the system that are driving some of these uh, some of these outcomes, which is why when we see shows like The Biggest Loser, where, you know, we have these morbidly obese indivi or obese individuals, overweight individuals, they're just being yelled at for eight hours to run on a treadmill or whatever. Like, it, to your point, that's not really sustainable. If we take that thirst, you know, example, like how long can you be thirsty? You can probably be and like to, humans don't want to be uncomfortable, right? So we have to really be thinking about is it sustainable for someone to work out for eight or 10 hours or whatever they're doing every day? And that's why we see like 98 or whatever the stat is, like, you know, mo the majority of participants to shows like that, these extreme weight loss shows all gain the weight back. And what I think would what I, I would guess it would make for incredibly boring television, but <laughs> it's just like very slow stepwise changes in maybe behavior and like taking into account that there's going to be setbacks and, you know, it like very, very mild, let's say caloric deficits so that we are not invoking some of the survival biology and the lipostat is not freaking out and like changing your leptin levels and your ghrelin levels and all of the other things that are, that are, that are sustaining sort of this long, this, you know, this, this fat set point over the long term. The, the other thing I wanted to just ask you about, I thought this was so interesting in your book. Uh, so I, uh, you know, my my undergrad is in neuroscience. So I remember you know, learning about the ventromedial hypothalamus and like these, you know, this uh, and you actually, you know, the, in the book, you gave an example of, you know, I think it was the 1890s. This woman just was like eating everything. She was hyperphagic. And they found that she had a tumor event, like when they did, you know, postmortem autopsies, they found that she had a tumor in her VMH. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was the role of the brainstem uh, in acute 
Uh, so, you know, when we look at when we look at the lipostat, uh, you know, what we're talking about is sort of uh, fat mass regulation over the long term, over the arc, let's say, of someone's life. But the brainstem, it seems like is also involved in uh, maybe meal to meal, uh, let's say, regulation. Can you touch a little bit on that and some of the mouse studies that these decerebrate, the, these these mice that essentially didn't have a hypothalamus, didn't have the VMH kind of, you know, with the input and what we what was noticed there? Yeah. So there's a lot there. So I'm going to take, I'll, I'll try to break it down into three big pieces. Um, first piece is I just had an idea for a new TV show and it's called <laughs> the biggest gainer and it just follows people after the biggest loser, no prizes, just see what happens to these people and catalog their lives and their weight changes. Maybe, maybe at, at the uh, end of every episode, you just show a weight curve you know, for, for all of them. Um, seems like that would make interesting TV and also really be informative about, you know, the struggle I think that those people would are facing. Can you imagine like losing a hundred pounds and then, and then all of a sudden you don't have all the support anymore and no one's like yelling at you while you run on a treadmill and you're just slowly regaining this weight. Yeah. It's gotta be miserable. Yeah. Um, so to the neuroscience, I think that, yeah, the neuroscience is super fascinating to me and the history of how it was all discovered. So um, the the woman who you referred to, her name was Eliza Moser, and she lived in Vienna. And in, um, yeah, she developed spontaneous obesity and in a short period of time, something like a year, she went from kind of normal weight to having severe obesity. And she had some other health issues as well developed around that time. <clears throat> and eventually she died. She died in 1839. And this uh, doctor named Bernard Moore did an autopsy. And he found in her brain that there was a tumor in her hypothalamus. And that's really the first evidence we have in the scientific literature of the brain playing an important role in body fat regulation. That's the first evidence that I'm aware of in the scientific literature. So that was a long time ago. So this research has been happening for a long time, which is to me part of what's surprising about how little public awareness there is about it. And then uh, if you go to the turn of the century, um, the early 1900s, there were at that time a lot of reports. People were really quite aware of the fact that, I should say, the medical community was quite aware of the fact that people who got tumors in their hypothalamus often developed severe rapid onset obesity. And, um, and we see that to this day. It's called hypothalamic obesity, and it's a tough condition. And they wanted to know why that happened. And so they started using animal models and they developed all these amazing tools like stereotaxic instrument, which I'm sure you're familiar with because of your neuroscience background, which lets you really precisely do brain surgery, even on rodents. So obviously rodents have small brains. Um, and so you need extremely precise instruments to do surgery, especially on small parts of the brain like the hypothalamus. And so they could go in and just 
do lesions, do a little damage to different parts of the brain and see how it affected weight. And what they found was there is this part of the brain in the hypothalamus called the ventromedial hypothalamus, the VMH. And when they damaged the VMH, these animals became severely obese very rapidly. And they would, they would do these lesions on the animals under anesthesia. And the animals, as soon as they came off the anesthesia, they were just stuffing their faces. And if you didn't let them, if you didn't give them any food, they would eat anything that was around. They would eat their bedding. They would eat non-edible. They would just work as hard as they could to get food into their bodies. And they would continue gorging until they became quite obese and then their appetite would kind of level off. So it was like their regulatory system all of a sudden wanted them to have obesity. And uh, since then, we've done tons of research and the tools we have today are like a million times more sophisticated than just going in and blowing stuff up in different parts of the brain. And uh, so we have all these circuits worked out and we know some of the cell types in the hypothalamus um, that are receiving that leptin signal and where they're going to regulate appetite and to regulate metabolic rate and, and other things and behavior. And so I don't think I, it probably doesn't make sense for me to go into detail on that um, unless you have specific questions, but I have some amount of detail in my book. Um, and then, so that is kind of the overview of the hypothalamus. Um, but one of the key ways that the hypothalamus does its job in regulating body fatness is in its connections to the brainstem. So this gets to the second topic that you mentioned, which is the brainstem control of meal to meal food intake. So the hypothalamus controls it. It is regulating your body fatness and trying to measure to regulate your body's long-term energy status, which is basically the same as your body fatness. But there's a different part of your brain in the hypothalamus that's regulating your food intake on a meal to meal basis. And that I call the satiety system. And that is really, you know, not surprisingly, it has really strong connections to your digestive tract. So it's getting lots of information from sensors in your mouth and nose, from your stomach, from your small intestine, getting lots of information that goes up your vagus nerve, plugs right into your brainstem um, in a uh, location called the NTS. And, uh, and, and, and then that is the part of your brain that decides when at a meal, you feel like you're done. So, you know, people kind of intuitively have this feeling like, well, you know, the way we eat is that we sit down and we start putting food in our mouths. And once the stomach is full, then we're done, right? Like you stop eating because there's yeah, no Yeah, but how? What's, what's driving that? Yeah. But it's not even true. Like your stomach has way more space in it than than it would take for you to just eat the amount of food that you habitually eat. Like you could, if you were putting your stomach to maximum capacity, you could probably be eating meals twice as big as you normally eat, maybe even bigger than that. 
If you just take a human stomach and you just like put water in it, it's huge. So the thing that stops you is not actually your stomach capacity. It is your brainstem getting signals from your digestive tract that build up to a point where it says you've had enough. And that's when it generates that feeling of stomach fullness, of loss of interest in food. It's broadcasting that signal to parts of your brain that are generating motivation and eating behaviors. And it's saying, Hey, you can, you can shut down now. We don't, we don't need that motivation. We don't need the hunger. We don't need the eating behavior anymore because we've had enough. Right. And so, and this is vaguely driven. This is vagus nerve driven as well. So we have these receptors in the small intestine that are kind of like scanning the composition of the food. Have I had enough amino acids? Is there enough fatty acids here, carbohydrates. And then that, you know, that's going to send that, you know, that's a vagus mediated process. Yes. Yes. Um, and I don't want to say that a hundred percent of it is vagus mediated, but, um, that is a very important element. And I would say probably the main element. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing is that the, the gain on this system is set by the hypothalamus. And this is what you would expect, right? So like if the hypothalamus decides that you don't have enough body fat, one of the ways you would expect it to get the fat back is by making you eat bigger meals, right? And so that's exactly what happens. It tells your brainstem, okay, from from now until we get the fat back, you're going to need bigger meals to feel satisfied. So you're going to need a greater buildup of all those signals before you turn the motivation off and turn the behavior off. And so there's that interconnection between those two systems in the service of both the short-term energy regulation and the long-term energy regulation of of body fatness. Um, And another thing that I think is really interesting and, and actionable about this system is the um, the amount of satiety you experience or satiation, I guess, which would be at the end of the meal, um, is not that closely, it's not, uh, I should say, it's not perfectly related to the number of calories that you eat. So certain types of foods will create more satiation and satiety than others per calorie. And so this is important because if you're eating high, high satiety foods, you can actually reach that point of feeling like you're full and feeling like you're ready to end your meal while having consumed many fewer calories than if you were eating low satiety foods. Because this is how we normally operate intuitively, right? We sit down to a meal, you start eating food, and you stop when you don't feel hungry anymore. That's just like the intuitive way that most people. But again, that's a behavior. The behavior is stopping eating. So we have to think what is the brain doing to stop? Correct. Yeah. And that behavior is related to that motivation level and that hunger level that are, that's all coming from different brain systems. And so. So basically you can kind of like, I don't want to say trick the system, but you can guide the system in a different direction depending on 
what types of foods you're eating. And I think it's really notable that, and, and I'll go through this in a little more detail in a moment, but I think it's really notable that the types of food that um, have a low satiety per calorie are the types of calorie dense, highly processed foods that A, we intuitively recognize as fattening and B, we're eating more of in, in recent years. Yeah. And so the foods that the, the food properties that cause lower satiety per calorie are higher calorie density. So in other words, um, more calories per unit weight or mat or uh, volume. So like foods that have a high water content have a lower calorie density. Like you could compare like a grape versus a raisin, a grape, has a low, relatively low calorie density. A raisin has a high calorie density because any dried the water fruit, <laughs> yeah, like any dried. Like I was looking at, uh, we have dried mango. Someone brought over a gift basket, and I was looking at the at the little thing on the back, at the you know the little uh, breakdown of the calories, and it was like forty two grams of sugar for like a little strip, and I could never imagine the equivalent size in like a fresh mango being that dense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any and dried like fruit. Yeah. Always off potato the table. chips versus potatoes, right. um, crackers right. versus a bowl of oatmeal. Mm -hmm. Like those are very different calorie densities. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one of the factors. So the, the more basically water and fiber you have in there that is, associated with the calories, the more full you're going to feel per unit calorie because your stomach is getting expanded by all this other stuff. And that's one of the signals that stomach distension is one of the signals that goes up and tells your brainstem that you've got food in your digestive tract. Yeah. And then there's also, um, I mentioned the fiber content. There's also protein so higher protein is higher satiety per calorie. And then there's palatability. So foods that taste really awesome are um, less filling per calorie. It's almost like your brain takes the brakes off because it perceives this as a highly valuable food. And so basically, if you put those together, you know, what foods are high calorie density, high palatability, low fiber and low protein, we get, you know, a bunch of stuff that we would call junk food, like brownies and pizza and potato chips and candy bars. Um, oh, even I think Lay's potato chips, like I bet you can't eat just one. Like that's the tagline. Yeah, and, that's and right. They're, and they're right. Yes. Yeah. And so, and on the other hand, if we look at foods that have higher satiety, excuse me, talking too fast, <laughs> higher satiety per calorie, um, these are things that we mostly would recognize as healthier, unrefined foods. Things like uh, fresh meats, oatmeal, fresh fruit, um, uh, other types of whole grains, vegetables. These are all foods that are on the other side of the spectrum that are more similar to what our ancestors would have regularly consumed 
and that allow us to experience satiation with a lower calorie intake such that we're not hungry at the end of the meal. We ate as much as we needed to, to feel comfortable, but we've consumed fewer calories. But you can't binge on it. Like, I don't know anybody that can binge on broccoli. Right. Right. Like it's really hard. You know, when I'm working with women, um, one of the things that we'll start to talk about is like, you can have unlimited amount of vegetables. Like there's no limit. Take the brakes off. It's very difficult. I've never had anyone say, you know what? I just went to town on those peppers. Like no one, no one does it because there's that, you know, that water you were talking about in the fiber, um, and the, um, you know, and, and maybe just the palatability, like there's only so many peppers you can have before you're sick of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are studies that have been done on what are the types of foods and the food properties that um, people experience strong cravings for and experience loss of control of eating behavior around. And what you see is that typically these are foods that are calorie dense combinations of fat and carbohydrate together. So you'll see the number one is chocolate. So that's the number one most commonly craved food. And um, below that, you're going to see things like uh, baked goods, like brownies and cookies. Chips, crackers. Yep. Salty snacks. French fries. Snacks. Yeah. French fries. You're going to see... Donuts, like even like the, it's the, it's the, it's what you're saying. It's the carb and the fat. It's like those bliss point, exactly. like, you know, the, it's the fried donut in the, in the oil. And then they put the icing and the sprinkles on it, you know, and, and hand it off to you. Like though people have a hard time, myself included, uh, resisting them because they're so damn good. That's right. And if you look at the, basically what these foods do um, what they appear to do is cause a really high release of dopamine in the brain. Yeah. And dopamine drives motivation. It drives behavior and it drives learning and habit formation. And so you consume these foods and it has an effect on your brain. That's kind of like a mild version of smoking cigarettes or injecting heroin. And I don't want to I don't know. That probably isn't a great analogy because I don't want people to think that I'm saying that like eating a brownie is like shooting up heroin. Um, Obviously, there's a difference. And dopamine is released in response to healthy foods, too. That's a normal brain process. But the more dopamine that's released, the higher the motivational state that's going to generate. And you're going to feel that as a craving and possibly loss of control over eating behavior. And, um, and there's going to be a decreased sense or sensation of fullness. Like you were saying that satiety factor is much lower, right? So you have this higher dopamine release in response to these palatable foods, decreased sense of fullness or, you know, coming up to coming up to satiety. And then you, you factor in, I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but you know, um, what we do know around, uh, with obese people is that they seem to have a higher reward release, like their dopaminergic release seems to be, uh, stronger than those who are not obese. And then there seems to be some element of leptin resistance. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of those, but it seems that there's more of a, 
even though that le- even though that adiposity or that fat mass is higher and they have higher circulating levels of leptin for whatever reason the pickup in the you know the the pickup in the hypothalamus doesn't seem to be what it should be for the relative uh, you know percentage of fat mass yes yeah, so this is this is uh, there's a lot there um, and I'm gonna try not to give a lengthy response but um, the interaction between reward system, the, the brain areas that regulate like craving and motivation and obesity is pretty complicated. Um, yeah. I think it is true that people who have, I mean, this is kind of obvious, but I think science is supporting it that people who have a stronger reward response to food. So people who are more motivated by, you know, calorie dense palatable foods tend to gain more weight over time. But once you reach the obese state, it kind of starts changing your brain and it has effects on your brain in terms of reward responses. Um, and what you see in, in animal research, there's some really cool studies on this. It increases the reward response threshold. So basically to put that a different way, uh, animals aren't interested in rewards unless they're really good. So basically like in an obese rat, they aren't gonna be interested in eating a food or doing anything really, unless it's really good. Like unless it's more attractive than what a lean rat would need to, to do that same thing. So you can even put an electrode into their brain and allow them to self-stimulate their reward centers and you actually have to jack up the voltage on that in the obese animals to get them to, to self-stimulate. Wow. So basically their reward system desensitizes. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's kind of, to, to think about this intuitively, it's like one of the things the reward system does is it prioritizes different rewards and behaviors. And so if you have a rat who's just like eating bland, boring food every day, like most rats in labs do, and then you give it, you start feeding it this delicious fattening food, which they do. They love the fattening food way more than their regular chow. It's like delicious to them. They get used to that. They don't want to go back to the old food, right? And their brain reorganizes such that that, tastier food is the new normal that is now like their baseline and the old stuff is like chopped liver the you know the old food that's just like whole grains they don't they're not interested in that at all you don't see the same reward response to it that you would see in a lean animal that's habituated to that food I don't even see how I'm different than that lab rat because after Christmas, I'm the exact same way. (laughs) Like I'm this, I have a hard time getting back on the, you know, we have like, you know, my husband is Italian. So we have the big lasagna and the porchetta and all the things. And after consuming those, I have to work to get back on my regular, you know, chow of, of broccoli and chicken and all the kind of lean meats and whatever that I consume. It's harder for me too. Absolutely. And, and that is how it works. Your brain gets to a kind of new normal in terms of the um, value of the reward that it expects. So how, you know, good the food is. And then if you want to go back 
to stuff that it's less excited about, it's just not going to be real excited about it. Mm -hmm. um, so these studies do suggest that the brain will be able to readapt after a while once you put animals back onto their old boring food. That hasn't been demonstrated in humans. I suspect my, you know, we're talking about rodent studies. Obviously, we have to be careful sure. about how we extrapolate. Sure. Um, but these systems are really very highly conserved across species. These are really old systems that have been around for like over 100 million years. And so I think that, you know, if I had to guess, I would say all of this is probably very much happening in humans, but that needs to be confirmed. Well, my N of one tells me that it's at least happening <laughs> in me after Thanksgiving and definitely after Christmas. It, it corresponds with yeah. our experience, right? Like yeah. it, it seems to correspond with yeah. me as well. Yeah. So I guess my question here, and I, and I, um, I know that we're running a little bit over time, but this is just so fascinating. I have so many more questions and I don't think we're going to get to all the topics that I've prepared today, but I guess the big overall question is how do we circumnavigate? So how do we, you know, if you have someone who, you know, I, I counsel so many women, perimenopausal in particular, that are like, listen, what is, what worked for me in my twenties no longer works for me in my forties. Right. And you mentioned uh, interestingly before that we sort of used to you know, prior to sort of modern industrialization, you know, the, you know, modern society that we would reach our weight sort of like at peak reproduction. And then it would kind of drop off from there. And we talked about like, maybe it's a bit more because there's sarcopenic, uh, you know, considerations there as well. Um, but what I see with my women is that we are definitely getting fatter, let's say, or the, 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 the percentage of fat uh, is, is increasing that creep, let's say over time. And I ask this because there are, um, you know, I talk about like kind of basics like sleep and, you know, putting a little bit of barriers between like if you just die for Doritos, then you can allow yourself to have them, right? Because there's also, we haven't talked about disinhibition, but if you have one piece, you know, one chip, let's say, or one Dorito, and you're like, you know, you get the, what I would call the case of the fuckets and you're just like, forget it, I'm having the whole bag. But if you remove the ease of, or the barrier of entry, let's say, and you say, okay, I can have whenever Doritos, I can have them whenever I want, but I just have to get off my butt and go to the gas station and I'll buy myself a single serving of Doritos. Um, so uh, there are things that we can do like, you know, prevent like ease of entry or ease of, you know, ease of access, let's say, uh, prioritizing sleep. Are there, um, and I'll say this because recently, you know, the Kardashians, unfortunately, are sort of everywhere and you can't get away from them. But two of the sisters, it seems like there's some speculation that they've um, gone through a um, like a partial sleeve, like a you know gastric bypass because they've both lost Kim. And I forget the I forget the other one's name, but she's blonde, uh, has lost a lot of weight. Like they've lost a rapid amount of weight in a very short amount of time. And while they weren't obese to begin with, and maybe it's, you know, kind of a, you know, for whatever their lifestyle and their brand branding and whatever, what are some of the solutions that we might consider if we are obese and we, and we're, if, if an individual is listening and they are obese or they have a sister or an uncle or whatever, whoever is obese, what are some of the things that are available to them? Is it, is it bypass surgery? Is it gastric bypass surgery, partial or full sleeves? Uh, is it, is it just the prioritizing of sleep and barriers of entry, or is it really a combination of both? Like, where do we want to, how do we want to approach 
this maybe as a, as a whole and if you can to the individual if it's possible yeah so i'm going to start off with the kardashians because i think uh <laughs> this is this kind of is a good segue um so i know nothing about the kardashians but uh one thing that has changed recently in terms of the uh tools that are available for a wealthy person like them to lose weight is the availability of these new weight loss drugs the GLP-1 receptor agonists and these include Wegovy uh which is the brand name for the drug semaglutide and yeah, that's um, I know. yeah Munjaro which is the brand name for the drug terzepatide. They're very similar drugs, but they work really well. And um, so I don't think that any of the Kardashians probably would medically qualify, but I mean, if you've got enough money, you could probably get your hands on it. And so, I mean, I would say that's a very good contender. I, again, I have no idea. I don't know anything about them, but I would say that's a very good contender for what might've happened there. Um, do so you think it's more of a medication-induced weight loss versus maybe a sleeve or something like that? Yeah. Knowing mm-hmm. nothing about the situation, that would be right. my first guess. <laughs> I don't because- either. I'm just, so, just to work, I don't know them or treat them or speak to them. It's just my observation of like a very rapid weight yeah. loss in a very short amount of time, which would be, yeah. it seems super physiologic. It doesn't seem like it's done naturally. I mean, if you don't have obesity... I don't think there's a surgeon, if you don't have obesity and don't have other medical indications for bariatric surgery, I don't think you could find a surgeon who would do bariatric surgery on you. At least, I mean, you'd have to go like probably to the bottom of the barrel of like the most like disreputable foreign surgeon you could possibly find to even have a chance. I mean, that would be like just nonsense. Um, on the other hand, these drugs, I think, um, would probably be a lot easier to obtain. And like thinking from the perspective of the individual too, like bariatric surgery, that's a major abdominal surgery. I think, you know, putting myself in their shoes, I think these drugs would look like a much better option mm-hmm. right. than having major abdominal surgery to lose like, I don't know, 15, 20 pounds. Like, yeah. So I mean, again, I know nothing about them or what they're doing, but certainly that would be my guess. Um, and so, okay. So you asked for someone with obesity, what should they be doing? I think, you know, I'm going to broaden the question a little bit because I think we can basically divide this into two different types of people, People who don't have obesity, who maybe just want to lose a few pounds or prevent weight gain, and then people who actually have obesity and may face other health challenges like type 2 diabetes or joint problems or whatever else related to that, what should they do? Because I think those are two very different scenarios. I think um, for someone with obesity, I would highly recommend seeing an obesity medicine specialist if you're able to do that, because um, those people are going to be way more knowledgeable than your typical uh, general practice physician in terms of how to treat obesity. Your Your regular GP does not have the tools to treat obesity. 
and that is starting to change. But right now, they are just not going to have the best tools that are available. And um, so I'd highly recommend that if you can. And the tools that we have today for obesity are really good. Like I wouldn't have said that 20 years ago, maybe not 10 years ago, but today they're just way better than they used to be for treating obesity, both in terms of the excess body fat itself and the health consequences of that excess body fat, like type two diabetes. And so um, we have, you know, basically one strategy you could consider with your doctor is you could start with uh, behavioral weight management, which means like diet and lifestyle, exercise, see how it goes. And then if that doesn't get you to where you want to be, escalate to something uh, more intensive. So you could consider these new medications like semaglutide, terzepatide that I was talking about. These are great drugs. Like I'm going to sound like a shill, but um, I, I have no conflicts of interest whatsoever with pharma. I just think these are great drugs and they cause way more weight loss than previous weight loss drugs. We're talking about 15 to 20% loss of body weight in people with obesity. And the side effects in terms of health outcomes appear to be mostly positive. They reduce cardiovascular events. They uh, re greatly reduce the risk of developing diabetes. They help control blood sugars in people with existing diabetes or who might have prediabetes. They can even, in some cases, put diabetes into remission. So these are, and, and in terms of the risk, like they don't appear to increase cancer risk. Uh, like they reduce all cause mortality in people with type two diabetes. So in other words, overall risk of dying is reduced. So like the safety profile looks really good. The main drawback um, in terms of side effects is they cause gastrointestinal problems when you first are ramping up. So people can get nausea, diarrhea, um, constipation, things like that. Usually those go away once your body adapts, but in the beginning, um, those can be pretty bothersome. Very few people actually discontinue as a result of these side effects. So for most people, they actually really like being on these drugs uh, and the side effects are minimal after a certain period of time and very much uh, viewed as worth it by both the patient and, and the doctor. So um, that's my kind of overview of those new drugs. They are very expensive in the US and not all insurance pays for them. In Canada, they're less expensive. I don't know the insurance situation. They're much less expensive in Canada, but still expensive. Um, so that's kind of, that's, that's the really new tool. And the last point I'll make about the drugs is that there's like an avalanche of awesome weight loss drugs that are going through the clinical trial pipeline right now. And the landscape of obesity treatment is going to be completely altered by this in the next like 10, 20 years, I believe we'll be in a very different place with regard to obesity treatment. 
Um, then there's bariatric surgery. So bariatric surgery is actually a really great option. So it's actually cheaper than being on these drugs because the surgery is expensive, but in the long run, it's actually way cheaper to get the surgery. Um, it's not reversible. So that's a drawback. If you have problems that result from the surgery, it's hard to walk that back. In some cases it could be impossible, but these surgeries have come a long way. They're really safe now and they're really effective. So, uh, vertical sleeve gastrectomy and Ruin Y are the two common, really effective ones. So I think that's actually a really good option still, um, but eventually it'll probably be displaced mostly by these drugs. So I would say that that's kind of like, that would be my main thinking on, for people who actually have obesity, who want to do something about it, who want the most effective tools available and um, yeah, that, those would be my thoughts. Now, the second bucket is people who just want to lose a few pounds or want to stop themselves from gaining weight. And I think that's the scenario where uh, behavioral weight management, so like diet and lifestyle, is really the, the tool that's going to stand out the most in that situation. So I think for that scenario, you know, just there, there are many tools that I think could be helpful. There's a lot of different diets out there, weight loss diets, all of them work to some degree. So I think at a high level, my kind of thinking for, you know, the average person just trying to eat a healthy, more slimming diet is eat foods that's lower calorie density, that um, is not hyper palatable foods you can enjoy and that are satisfying, but that are not really pushing those reward buttons in your brain too hard. Um, and try to eat mostly at meals so not eating a lot between meals and not having food cues in your environment between meals. So you don't want to have stuff on the counter that you can just see and walk over and grab. And that's easy to eat. That is how your reward system gets triggered. Those sensory cues, the sight, the smell, even the location and the context where you've previously consumed foods. Those things, it's like Pavlov's dogs, it triggers those associations in your brain that generates that motivational state. Suddenly you have a craving, you might start to feel hungry all of a sudden, and then it's gonna be hard for you not to eat that food. So set yourself up for success. Don't have food around the sight of it, the smell of it. Um, so that's controlling your food environment. I think that's also really important. And then I think also being regularly physically active, getting restorative sleep, managing stress. Those are other things that can uh, make a positive contribution. Great. I want to, I want to do a bit of a, a hard left here and I want to talk about your, um, service, um, uh, or some of the, we talked about this at the beginning of the, uh, the top of the hour, uh, around, um, you know, your, we'll say empirical approach to evaluating, uh, science, even on this conversation. Uh, I've been uh, fact-checked a couple of times, which I, which I appreciate and I welcome. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about red pen reviews, which is something that 
uh, you uh, you have started. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that is, what the intention is of reviewing uh, some of the books and um, and some of the, um, we'll say, diet books and uh, shall I say misinformation sometimes, disinformation sometimes that we can see that I think also causes a lot of confusion. Like we've been talking about some of the neurobiological mechanisms and societal and cultural shifts over time. But I think that one of the other things that makes things incredibly difficult for people is they hear, let's say, in the online space on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the whatever other mediums, we have a lot of people saying very different things. Plants are good. Plants are bad. Fats are good. Fats are bad. Carbs are good. Carbs are bad. Um, Protein's good. Protein's bad. You know, longevity, we need in the longevity space, we need to restrict protein, but in order to build muscle, we need, so there's, there's all these different sort of opposing thoughts, opposing diets. Um, So tell us a little bit about red, uh, red pen reviews and what your sort of intention and aim is around it. Yeah. So red pen reviews is a nonprofit organization that publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased reviews of popular nutrition books available. So essentially, um, I think many people, certainly including myself, are frustrated by the conflicting claims about nutrition in the popular literature. And um, many people, including me, find it hard to sort fact from fiction sometimes, you know, you can be reading a book, it sounds really compelling. And then the next week, somebody shows you a study and you're like, oh, wow, that was garbage. And I just believed it because this person told a nice story. And like, what are you going to do to evaluate that? Are you going to, you know, go back and check all the citations in the book and do scientific literature searches for, for every book that every person in this country reads? No, people don't do that. So that's our job. That's what we do. We look at the citations. We do scientific literature searches. And most importantly, we have a specific structured review method that gives books numerical scores on scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. So we have a structured semi-quantitative method that is applied to books by experts in nutrition or, or a related field of science. And um, those books are numerically scored using a defined and consistent method. And then the output is in terms that are really easy for people to understand on the, on the review page. So you land on the review page, the first thing you see, and by the way, website is redpenreviews.org. You land on a review page, First thing you see is an image of the book cover and right next to it are score bars that give the book its overall score and then the subscores of scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. So you could literally land on a review page and in less than five seconds, you would have extremely valuable information about the information quality of that book. And so you know, you think about this, like, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm hyping my own thing, but I think this is literally true that what we're doing is just far superior to the alternatives. You think about it, like if you want to figure out whether a book is 
worth reading, what, what are you going to do? Like you might do an internet search for book reviews. You're going to find Amazon reviews. Those are basically garbage. They're not informative at all. If you look at any book, regardless of how far out it is, if it's popular, it's going to have between four and five stars, almost guaranteed. Um, and you can find other reviews, like you might find some through major news organizations like New York Times, The Atlantic. Usually those are not written by experts. They're usually written by journalists. Rarely do they check a single citation in those types of reviews. It's kind of crazy to say that out loud, but that is a fact. And um, they're not doing scientific literature searches. And it's, it's not true uh, skeptical evaluation of that information. It's more like how, like, how am I intuitively reacting to this? And so um, there's just, and, you know, even, even book reviews that are done that are higher quality than that, like maybe an expert would write it. Maybe they would check a few citations. Those are a slim minority, but even in those cases, they're not applying a consistent method. So you can't compare one book to another. So you couldn't say like, okay, well, this person thought book A was, was garbage or, you know, was not very good. And then they reviewed book B or I found another review somewhere else for book B that said it was good. That's not an apples to apples comparison because they didn't use the same review method, right? Whereas our method is always apples to apples. So you can come to our website and you can say, well, book A got a scientific accuracy score of 50%. Book B got a scientific accuracy score of 80%. That's an apples to apples comparison because it was judged in the same way. So you can say with confidence that book B is more scientifically accurate than book A. So just in, in many ways across the board, our method is just better than anything else that's available. And, you know, I describe the, the popular nutrition sphere as an exploding volcano of nonsense. And I think that's kind of an uncharitable way to describe it, but I think it's just highly variable. Like some stuff is great information. Some stuff is terrible information and it can be really hard to sort through that. So we're trying to help people sort through that. And, and we're even thinking bigger than that. We want to change the whole incentive structure for the publishing industry such that authors and publishers don't want to support misinformation anymore. They know that they will be rewarded for accurate information and that they will lose sales for inaccurate information and hype and hyperbole and whatever. So we're trying to completely, in the long run, trying to completely reshape the health information environment so that the public can get better information and um, ultimately make better health-related decisions. I think this is so important because I hear this all the time um, from people who've said, but so-and-so thinks this, and that, con you know, that, that contradicts what, you know, some other doctor uh, or some other physician or practitioner um, has said. Um, 
in in reviewing some of these uh, books, let's say the volcano of nonsense, <laughs> um, what has what have been some of your um, observations? Have there have there been uh, let's say uh, books that you started off saying this is going to be complete nonsense, and then going through it was like, oh, there's actually quite a solid argument here, um, or the reverse, um, maybe uh, thinking that there was a lot of let's say scientific validity or justification for a certain type of eating or way or diet or you know whatever the author was claiming, and then once you dug into uh, let's say the citations and the literature and the accuracy, you found that it was not the case. Yeah, there have been some surprises. I mean, I would say in general, I usually, usually books don't score as well as I think they're going to. So um, like, I think there is some degree of misrepresentation and exaggeration in most most health and nutrition books. And I think we just kind of accept that even a good book is going to do some of that. Um, and that's just kind of how it goes. So our method uh, doesn't play that. And so it shows up in the score. Um, but uh, so that's kind of like the high level, but there are some where there have been surprises. So for example, um, let's see, the carnivore code was kind of a roller coaster ride. So that's Paul Saladino's book. So I went into it. I was the primary reviewer on that. Um, most of the books that we have reviewed, I, I am not involved with, but this one I was, um, I went into it pretty skeptical. Like I didn't think it was going to do well. And then I start reading the book and I'm like, yeah, you know, actually this is, this is kind of making sense. Like a lot of the points he's making are actually pretty compelling. And, and then when I started scoring it and actually doing scientific literature searches and following the citations, it really didn't hold up at all. And so that was kind of a, um, a roller coaster ride for me where I kind of, I think that this happens to a lot of us. I got swept up in a compelling narrative as I read the book. You know, when you decide to read somebody's book, you're a captive audience and you're allowing them to be in your brain for a while. And people can be very convincing. And so that, you know, I thought the narrative was pretty compelling. And then it, again, it wasn't until I started checking references and doing literature searches and saying, you know, this claim that's being made, is it really representative of the overall body of evidence? And that's when the, the problems started to emerge. And so for that book, it got a, uh, let's see, overall score of 38%, scientific accuracy of 28%, reference accuracy of 60%, which is not that bad, healthfulness of 25%. I was surprised actually. I put the carnivore diet through a uh, nutrition, um, like nutrient analysis program. This like professional dietitian program that uh, has the nutrient values for a bunch of different foods, and you input the foods, and it tells you whether it's nutritionally adequate. I was actually surprised at how nutritionally inadequate the carnivore diet is a purely carnivorous diet, I should say. There were actually a number of nutrients where it was falling short. Um, and that was actually a surprise to me. 
So yeah, that's one example of a uh, kind of uh, some surprises that I had for while doing a review. I think it speaks to, and we were talking about this in the pre-chat, um, as someone who, you know, and I kind of have jokingly said this publicly and privately, uh, as a chiropractor, DC is my, you know, the letters behind my name, if you will, always sort of felt like a second class citizen in the healthcare space because the cultural authority has always sort of been ascribed to someone with an MD or medical doctor um, behind their name. And it seems like, uh, you know, Paul or, and others, you know, not just, not just, uh, you know, I know you're not just picking on, let's say Paul, you're just sort of, uh, you know, and you're not picking on him. You're, you're, you're sort of evaluating the body of work that he's putting forward. Um, it can be sometimes that the, uh, the cultural authority of MD is weighted differently, let's say, than other practitioners who like I've always known that I've always had to work twice as hard or thrice, like three or four times as hard just to sort of be, um, you know, considered serious and not just like a silly, you know, backcracker or whatever, whatever kind of like preconceived, um, you know, schemas you might have about what a chiropractor does. So I, I appreciate the, um, we'll say dispassionate. Uh, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but just like a, a dispassionate approach to um, looking at data and sort of separating fact from fiction. Uh, because I've often, even in, in clinical practice, I've, you know, run up several times uh, with, you know, other healthcare practitioners, different letters behind their name. And because the, those letters, let's say, are weighted heavier, you know, in the eyes of the patient, uh, where I've had a different opinion around what might be, you know, a, the best course of action for someone. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, patients be told that diet has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, o you know obesity. And we were talking about obesity and it's like, you know, there's nothing you can do and maybe you need whatever metformin or you need like whatever, whatever it is, whatever the conversation is. And I think that, um, I, I tend to be a conservative practitioner in that there's usually some truth to everything. Like we're not going to get to the carbohydrate insulin model today because <laughs> we've been going now for about two hours. Um, but, but I really, I, you know, the, my whole sort of ramble here is, is to your, is to say that I'm really excited about the work that you're putting out because it doesn't matter who it is. You're just evaluating the body of work that they're putting out and how useful or unuseful um, that might be and how that might contribute. I know we hear this word a lot now in the sort of COVID era of like misinformation and disinformation, but I think that that also exists in the nutritional uh, space ad nauseum. Uh, there is a lot of uh, things that don't make sense that are touted as gospel in some ways. And in some way, you know, I've talked about this on other show, uh, other podcasts, but in some ways it seems like nutrition has replaced religion. We've been talking about sort of, you know, societal trends. And one of those trends has been away from the church and we seem to have replaced uh, religion and our affinity with groups such as religion, uh, with nutrition, like I'm a vegan, I'm a carnivore, I'm a keto, I'm a paleo, I'm a this, I'm, you know, whatever, whatever words. Uh, and we adhere to them in lieu of blatant information that would suggest that maybe this is not the best thing for the individual at the individual level. Yeah. I mean, it's tribalism, you know, psychologically right. humans are, we're tribally oriented and, yeah. We like to find tribes and we have beliefs associated with those tribes. And 
and we stick to those beliefs and defend them because it's about defending the tribe and the ego that's linked to that. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think the closer a topic is to um, identity, the more it triggers those kinds of things. And so you see religion, you see politics and diet. This is what my dad said to me. He said, religion, politics, and diet are the three biggest uh, things that that people have irrational beliefs about and get worked up about because of that link to personal identity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think there's some, some truth to that. And yeah, to touch on a a point that you mentioned earlier and that we were, that we briefly talked about um, prior to the, the interview was, you know, the degree that a person has is not, in our experience, well correlated with the quality of their information. So, you know, we have a limited sample size right now. We have 15 books up. So I think as we get more books, we'll be able to say this with greater confidence. But what I can say at a minimum is that having a PhD, even being a like actual respected researcher at a uh, like top research institution does not guarantee that your book is is Mm evidence-based and that's a sad thing to say, but that is true. Having an MD does not guarantee that your book is evidence-based. Also sad, but true. And, you know, people with PhDs and MDs are humans and they respond to the same incentives as everybody else. And I think, I think if I were to say, like, I think there probably is some correlation. Like I think on average, probably books written by PhDs and MDs are, are, tend to be better, um, but it's not at all a reliable indicator in our experience. Well, we will make sure that uh, redpinreviews.org is in the show notes, and this is accessible for everybody, or do you have to have a paid membership in order to access the information? It is 100% free to everyone. Yeah, redpinreviews.org. We don't hold anything back. We do greatly appreciate donations, um, and even just... You know, if you want to help, you can just share the information. If you find it useful, just send it out to your friends. Uh, We also, for anyone with a uh, master's degree or higher in nutrition or relevant field of expertise, we would, you know, if you're interested, we would love to consider you as a reviewer. We're always looking for new reviewers so we can expand our impact. Beautiful. All right. I'll have all of that in the show notes. This has been so wonderful. I have enjoyed every moment of this. Thank you so much (laughs) for the nuance that you've brought to this conversation. And I hope that this really, I I know this will really help a lot of the, we have a lot of clinicians that listen to the show and then, you know, sort of the demographic is largely female, uh, tends to be in, you know, sort of those perimenopausal years where they're trying to figure out, you know, what was working in their twenties, no longer working in their forties and fifties. Uh, and I think that this brings a lot of, uh, context, uh, into, you know, what we're again, what we're up against, uh, the book, of course, I'll have it in the show notes and the Amazon link, the hungry brain outsmarting the instincts that make us overeat, uh, and available, I'm assuming anywhere that books are sold. We're finding this in like Barnes and Nobles and all the places across any bookstores and online. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Pretty much any major bookseller should, should still have it available. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay. Thank you for having me. 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 